Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we're back with an episode outside of our regular schedule as Fangraphs just dropped its top 45 prospect list for the Baltimore Orioles farm system. Listeners of our show know that this is one of our favorite lists that comes out every year for the Orioles and honestly for all the major leagues. The work that Eric Longenhagen, Kevin Goldstein, and the crew over at Fangraphs put into these uh, lists is excellent. And so we felt like uh, while we wait for our next show with Dr. Stephen Loftus, which we'll run next week, we would check back in with our reaction to this top 45 prospect list over at Fangraphs.com. One thing we're not going to do on this episode is name all 45 players in a row for you in order just to not step on any toes and be respectful of the work that goes into this list over at Fangraphs. We're going to go through it give our thoughts on certain things, but then encourage you if you haven't already to head over there and check out the list. It's not behind the paywall. You can read the entire thing. And not only do you get the 45 players, but you get players broken down into different categories that Eric Longenhagen and Kevin Goldstein have chosen to highlight. And we're going to talk about those a little bit too, in addition to the main list. And we did reach out to Eric Longenhagen to have him on the show as we did a year ago. He politely declined uh, citing what is undoubtedly a busy schedule, but we hope to have him on sometime in the future. So looking at this whole list, and I'll start with Nick on this, it's obviously a pretty deep list when you look at this many players, but the top two reports for Adley Rutzman and Grayson Rodriguez have been drawing a lot of attention in the hours since this list came out because they're glowing. Yeah, I mean, I know we, we like to highlight the, the back end of the list here and those sleeper guys, but just taking a moment to highlight Rutschman and Rodriguez, like the hype continues to grow among both these guys, I feel like. It may be because we should see them in the major leagues this year, but I mean, you have, you know, Ali Rutschman, his write-up saying he's in a tier of his own in terms of baseball prospects, and the glowing reviews never get old uh, when reading about Ali Rutschman there. And Grayson Rodriguez, to see him labeled as number one starter, Cy Young candidate. Uh, this is a guy that I think it was Jim Cowles at MLB Pipeline was a couple of weeks ago saying that people are still sleeping on Grayson Rodriguez, even though he is the top pitching prospect in baseball. Uh, and I think that's true. And I think you've seen with, with go back to our Ben Badler interview last week, uh, read this write-up that Eric Long and Hayden and Kevin Goldstein has. Just the general discussions about uh, Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rushman over the last week or so. Uh, I've been picking up steam and it's amazing to see. And it's like, I feel like it's gotten to the point where just let your guard down. Like these are the top two, two of the top prospects in all of baseball. They're in Birdland, and we're going to see them in Baltimore this year. So it's, it's getting even more jacked up for the baseball season. Hopefully uh, starting sooner rather than later. Yeah. It's like you said, you know, we, we do this every week. So, course we're trying to get excited for the next guys coming up the list who's going to be the next thing it's very easy to just take for granted what we have and it's so astronomically rare to have a one-two punch like Grayson Rodriguez 
and Adley Rutschman and reading this, it's just a reminder of just how special these prospects are and these players are and how close we are to seeing them play every single day at the major league level. Rutschman almost made him their second ever 80 future value player saying he was like easily head and shoulders, their number one prospect in baseball. Grayson Rodriguez, you have three 70 grade pitches, not just future now fastball slider curveball with a change up and cutter that are pretty much right at 60. So five plus pitches hitting hundred miles an hour saying that he is the potential to be a number one starter and Cy Young candidate. I mean, these are things like, I don't know, this is, we've read a lot of glowing stuff about these guys, obviously for a couple of years now, but this was just like above and beyond for me. It was thrilling to read. And, uh, and this whole list, I feel like agree or disagree with the placement. I mean, a list is a list. It's just an order of names, but if you read the write-ups, I feel like it's pretty much spot on with, with almost everybody, and it just got me even more excited for what we have going on here. Can we also say Lance uh, Brozdowski, who I think now works with Chicago Cubs or Chicago Cubs TV, but was was with Prospects Lives and, and other Razzball before that. Uh, he called Grayson Rodriguez's changeup a, a unicorn pitch, says those metrics on that pitch, no one else in baseball is throwing that. And that's one of Rodriguez's lowest rated uh, pitches on this Fangraphs report. I mean, that tells you kind of a, a lot more right there about just how elite of a pitching prospect Rodriguez is. Well, uh, Keith Law will tell you it's just a slow fastball, <laughs> batting practice fastball. So who's, I who's guess, that? yeah, not many guys are throwing that. So it takes me back to a discussion we had here on the show a few weeks ago, which is um, what was the ceiling versus the floor for Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall? And if both, you know, who would you take, you know, without any injuries, anything like that? This is why I still went with Grayson Rodriguez because across the board, everything is just there. You don't see a lot of pitching prospects like this. Um, and usually I feel like when you – you could see a pitcher dominate at the lower levels with similar stuff. But then by the time they get to double A and triple A, you start to see warning signs. Maybe they're giving up more home runs. Maybe the walks are going up. Grayson Rodriguez is actually getting better with each level, and that has been really promising to do. I just one game in particular that still stands out to me was that start against Erie where he took out literally the entire Detroit Tigers farm system. I mean, in one of his best starts of the year and that had Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green. I mean, that lineup was just absolutely stacked. Uh, and Rodriguez, like I said, one of his best starts of the entire year. So, yeah, I think Bob said it perfectly. We take those two guys for granted just because we see their names so often that we see their highlights so often. It's like, oh, he, Grayson Rodriguez only gave up you know two runs across five innings with eight strikeouts. Like, not a great night for Grayson. Like, no, it's a spectacular night. Uh, it's a spectacular prospect, these top two guys. Uh, and even the, the list, the next five, six guys behind him, you know, they may not be future Cy Young candidates or perennial all-stars, but they are really, really good prospects with super high ceilings. Uh, and the depth, you mentioned the depth earlier. I think a lot of people like to attack that depth in the system. I think it's there. I And this list, I think, only strengthens that argument that that depth is, in fact, there. Yeah, and Grayson Rodriguez, not only does he have, just to go back to him for a second, not only does he have five-plus pitches according to Fangraphs, but, I mean, you talked about the one star that stands out. The other one is where he barely made it out of the first inning, and then, the next four innings was like perfect, shut them down completely. So we know he has the right mentality and and competitiveness too. I mean, he's barely 22 years old. 
he's a bulldog. He's a big, durable guy. I'm not too worried about stretching him out, but I mean, that is like pretty much the only thing that remains to be seen about him. So, yeah. And like you said, the depth, I mean, <laughs> you just go up and down this list reading these things. And even when you get past like the numbered to 45, when you get to the other guys, you see names and you, even they write like this guy could pop or, you know, it's not just uh, a bunch of, a bunch of um you know utility depth it's guys that can de- continue to develop and i think they said it pretty good at the uh the wrap up at the bottom where yeah mike elias has a penchant for just getting and developing guys to get to the major leagues and then you know rely on the player development for them to break out beyond that point yeah absolutely and moving down the list and kind of getting into some of the things we want to discuss tonight was where our list differs from this list a little bit, but why we don't think that's a bad thing and why in some cases we think that the Fangrass list is spot on. And a good example here is at number 29 with Caden Grenier. Grenier was not in our top 50 at all. Um, so you would think that looking at this list, oh, we have you know we have it out for the Fangrass guys because their list is so much different than ours. Looking at the Grenier write-up and looking at a lot of the write-ups on this list, it's spot on. Uh, everything they have to say about him is correct. I don't know about the 70 run tool, but I'll admit that that's strictly eye test. It's not as though I've had a stopwatch out when I've seen Caden Grenier run. So they're probably going off of something a little more reliable than the eye test. But, you know, it basically talks about Caden Grenier as a player he is, which is a really good defensive shortstop with an odd swing that, you know, limits his ability to make contact. That's a spot on write up. Yeah, for sure. It's um, and you know some outlets value certain things more than others. Like I know everyone's punching bag Keith Law, but he focuses more on just straight ceiling, straight potential. And Fangraphs they see Grenier as a guy who has an incredibly high floor just because of his defense alone. He's fast. He's got a little bit of pop. So they they see him eventually making the major leagues, which. If a player is going to make the major leagues, that's going to push him higher up on their list, even if, you know, that might be as far as it goes for him. I just don't see it. Um, like, I, I don't understand. Like, I wrote on on our outline, transparency here, I said, are we missing something with Grenier? Uh, and I guess it is that floor. Like, if you want to go floor, sure, I get it. You put him, you jack him up higher on your list because he is there. I think I go back to our conversation we have with Kyle Glazer, and he said, he was talking about Jorge Mateo and the end of a major league bench, though, for the Orioles and saying those guys aren't going to win you very many games, if any, but they can lose you games. And so like, I think back to some of that triple A depth over the last couple of years, you know, Christopher Bostic is a name that always comes to my mind first. Ago. Two years ago, if the Orioles had an injury at shortstop and needed Christopher Bostic to fill in, that's still going to leave a major void in your lineup. But if Grenier is still just nothing more than, you know, Mason McCoy with a better glove, you know, that's every organization wants that, wants that type of guy sitting in AAA because Grenier can come up for two weeks. He can draw a walk, he plays very good defense. He's going to pop into a couple home runs and you can live with that. Um, you know, I just don't, you know, me personally, I put guys like, you know, there are other guys like Basayo and Tavera and Zach Peak who aren't on this list while King Grenier is. That was my only big question mark. Are, are we missing something there with him? But, you know, when you talk about that high floor, I do get it. Because not to bag on Kane Grenier, it sounds like completely dismissive here. Um, he's a very good baseball player who's going to stick around pro ball for a very long time. Like I, I will definitely give him that. 
I feel like it's if Richie Martin was in AAA when we took him in the Rule 5 draft instead of being forced to be the major league team. I mean, he's a guy, like you said, they can just come up in a pinch, help you out a little bit. Exactly. And, I, you know, we saw him when you were last year, and I thought when we saw him, the glove is major league ready. You know, he could probably step into the shortstop position at the major league level right now and be an upgrade over every shortstop the Orioles had post-Freddy Galvis last year on the defense uh, side of the equation. Offense, we know there's going to be challenges, but the defense is really good. It, it is really good, and that's why I kind of just said, you know, Mason McCoy with a better glove because you still – you look at his strikeout numbers, though. I mean, they're north of 30%. He's hit – he hit 226 last year in double-A, 208 in a high A, 216 his rookie year. Like, he's not going to hit for a high average, but he does get on base, and I want to clock him now. What is this – what was that, 70 grade speed? Is that what you said? Um, I, I want to see this speed because that's – if that's accurate, that's phenomenal. But that was my yeah. only big, big thing there. Caden Grenier at 29 is why I think they're still sleeping on Joey Ortiz at 23, just because Ortiz is going to give you elite defense anywhere on the infield dirt. And we've seen the progress he's made with the bat. I think it's just going to be just going to take a little more time proving it this coming year once he's healthy at a longer, longer stretch. Yeah, I think Ortiz has had to overcome the small sample size disclaimer that's been thrown around about his season last year. And normally I think that would be fair where I, you know, where I feel like Ortiz's breakout could be for real is in everything that we heard about the exit velocities, including when Matt Blood was on here, um, that he was hitting the ball much harder. And Keith Law actually wrote that up. So this as well. So this is coming from a few different sources. I do, you know, have some concerns about what shoulder injury recovery is going to look like, but that's just because he's been hurt for a while and because, you know, there's no guarantees with how that's going to turn out, but it's his non-throwing shoulder, which is a good thing. And I think he's a guy who's an incredibly high floor because he's a good defender and he has always had a really sound plate approach. It was just that before last year, he didn't hit the ball that hard. And then last year in the limited time we saw him before the injury, he was hitting the ball a lot harder and hitting for more power. I was just going to say, you see I feel like there's more and more research. I think our internet's lagging. Somebody's just, there's just more and more research that I've seen recently about the, the exit velocity, right? You hit the ball hard, good things are going to happen. And you're seeing this quantified, you're seeing this put out more in the public sphere so we can see it for ourselves. And so I think you're seeing exactly why the Orioles are targeting these guys who, all right, they're hitting 220 right now in the lower levels of the minor leagues or you know, the batting average may not be there, but they hit the ball extremely hard. And you're seeing them move up and being challenged in this system they can make tweaks along the way, but one thing that's harder to teach is hitting the ball extremely hard, which Joey Ortiz does very well. So, yeah, I think there's still a big breakout there. If, as long as that injury, he is able to rebound from that injury well, which we'll see. Yeah, I was just going to say that Eric Garfield was on Locked on Orioles this morning, and obviously we know Eric is down there getting all that video, watching these these guys work out from a distance down there, and he said that, you know, he's got video of Joey Ortiz hitting bullets all over the field, taking some infield practice, making some nice throws. So at least the early signs are that the rehab's going well, and he's he's pretty healthy now. Look at pitchers now who appeared on the fan grass list. And Drew Rahm and Kyle Bronovitz appeared in the top 20 with Michael Ballman just outside the list. And we talked a little bit about the write-ups. I don't necessarily disagree with Ballman's write-up, but that's someone we did have higher on our list. We had him 
higher than Rom and Bronovitz. So looking at that group, Nick, just kind of getting your thoughts on what Fangraphs had to write about them. Uh, my only issue with Drew Rom at 15 was there was a line in the blurb. He says he has a shot to break out in 2022. Uh, if 2021 wasn't a breakout, then like I don't know what is. <laughs> but I get what they're saying there. So I'm just happy that a national outlet, specifically Fangraphs, is finally noting the higher velo. So people can stop asking the velo. People can stop talking about his velo. It's there. It is climbing. Um, stop sleeping on Drew Rom. Uh, he pitched very well in double A and got stronger and more effective in higher pressure situations as the season went on. And I, I know it's cliche is, is all get out, but like that's a bulldog on the mound. Uh, it, it's Drew Rom. Bronovich at 17 was, uh, I, I just laughed when I read that report. Like, one, because there's no mention of Velo anywhere in there, maybe because he's a righty. But, um, like, what is it that is – I mentioned in our top 50 list, like, I want to pick somebody's brain about Kyle Bronovich. I want to get Kyle Bronovich on the show to talk to him about it because this guy is just – he gets guys out, and he's so effective. And to see Fangraph so high on him say, this is a back-end starter potential. Um, I think that's amazing. That double-knuckle curve, again, is, is something that's there. Uh, that more and more people are, are becoming fascinated with. And Bauman, I think he got dropped because there's that reliever risk, which we kind of talked a little bit before coming on. I'm perfectly fine with. Give him every opportunity to start next year. He's earned that. He's got the build to do it. But when I watch Michael Bauman and I envision a guy who can come in the eighth or ninth inning, throw it 97, 98, maybe even 99 miles an hour with that wipeout slider, um, it's it's intriguing to me. Yeah, I mean, the world is moving on from CD ROMs. They're just getting to know Drew Rom. He, he, I, yeah, I think they mean breakout as far as like national recognition yeah. and, you know, the top end of the minor leagues. We, we know Drew Rom, he's, he's never not been great in the minor leagues. The results have been there since he made his professional debut. Love seeing all that, that the velocity is ticking up a little bit, maybe. You know, if that continues just a little bit more, he's still incredibly young, just like Grayson Rodriguez. So lots of love there. And yeah, Bronovich might have been my favorite write-up. Even it's it's a very, very short one. But yeah, he says it says his fastball has enough action that it's not easy to square up. Yeah, like you said, it doesn't mention velocity, but it must have some kind of hop to it. And I love the last line. He's a high probability back of the rotation guy who will eat a ton of innings because he works so efficiently. I love that. I mean, if Bonovich is like the four or five starter, giving you five or six innings every single time out, giving up two, three runs maybe. But, yeah, I love that. I don't think he's reserved to uh, a relief prospect by any means. And 2022 will be a big year for him. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm anxious to see what he does against, you know, AAA hitters. I think that's going to tell us, you know, something about what he'll do in the majors. And I think the efficiency is really going to be crucial for him because he doesn't have that, you know, 95 plus fastball that he can just blow by people. But that knuckle curveball is impressive. You know, if you ever I think Fangrass was actually the one who tweeted out the mm-hmm. gif of the knuckle curveball in Boson a few months ago. And that was impressive. Um, so to see the movement on that pitch really does give you a sense that this is someone who has a true out pitch which is not something you can always say about these really command-oriented starters because when we tend to talk about pitchers that are command-oriented, you know, like an Alexander Wells being an example, it's always, well, what is the out pitch? You know, what is the pitch that's going to get them, 
you know, through an at bat, what's going to be the pitch that gets them to strike out or gets them to get a hitter off balance in a, you know, close count or a deep count. Bronovitz possibly has that as a knuckle curveball. And I think that does separate him a good bit from, you know, either left-handed or right-handed pitchers that can't rely on velocity. I almost think too, like we saw Alex Wells have some good starts last year in the, in the big leagues. He, went on that phenomenal run there in AAA. Um, you know, if the Orioles can get a, something decent out of Alex Wells at the major league level, I think you can get even more out of Kyle Bronovich. Again, both these guys just, you pick a spot, they're going to throw it there, and they're going to have no issues hitting any spot within the strike zone. Uh, so even without that velo, they've got a lot of other characteristics that really allow their stuff to play up. And so um, Vivek there mentioning the hitch in that delivery. Yeah, it's funky. Uh, it throws you off. Uh, you can even tell on Bowie's feed. It's a funky delivery. Um, and so I'm just watching Alex Wells. And the more Alex Wells progresses and Thor's get out of him, I think watch Kyle Bronovich. And I think, like I said, you're going to get even more out of him. I mean, it would be interesting if, you know, you got your Bronovich, Alex Wells, Drew Rahm, three, four, five, you know, not the hardest throwers, but they're going to give you five, six innings. And then you get your Kyle Bradish, your Michael Bauman, your DL Halls, throwing straight heat for one or two innings in the later innings. I mean, it could be interesting to see, you know, like three or four years, exactly what the makeup of the pitching staff looks like. Or where baseball is, you know, you saw, you're no longer seeing guys go seven innings every single start, every five days. Now, like you saw the Rays switch things up with the opener. And I don't really know if that's much of a thing that one inning opener is much of a thing anymore, but you know, depending on where the game of baseball is moving as well, I feel like the Orioles have positioned themselves pretty well with these pitching prospects to kind of go in different directions depending on how the game changes. Speaking of Kyle Bradish, that was another one of my favorite write-ups. I think, Nick, you mentioned it. He went from in the 30s all the way up to number 7 to 45-plus, like definite rotation piece, it seems like. So, yeah, big fan of that. Yeah, absolutely. It was good to see that write-up for Braddis. I know the Fangraphs had gotten a little bit higher on him um, after he broke out at the start of last season, and that's solidified with his ranking on this list. Transition, though, to a position player, and that's Reed Tremble, who Fangraphs has 16th on their list. I wasn't terribly surprised by this ranking because Fangraphs was high on Tremble uh, leading up to the draft and has been complimentary of that pick since the Orioles made it. So the fact that they had him here was not that surprising to me. I guess where what I wanted to get into a little bit, though, is where the gap sort of exists between us and Fangraphs. I think we had Trimble somewhere in the early 20s. We were concerned about the injury. Um, and Fangraphs does point out that Trimble is a really raw prospect, but at the same time, there is a lot of tools here, and there's a lot of potential for him to build on, and that he's a younger guy who got drafted with relatively little experience in college. So Nikki, looking at that right up at Trimble, did it kind of, did it affect your perception of him at all as a prospect? Not really, just because, you know, like you mentioned, Fangraphs was an outlet that was very high on Reed Trimble coming out of the draft, going into the draft. Um, and so, yeah, keeping him high, even with the injury like Keston Kerstad, do you, can you ding him because he got hurt and he is so young? I don't think you can really penalize him there. Although I think on my own personal list, I probably did drop him some spots just because we know we may not see him play at all next year. 
Uh, so he's missing another year of development here. But I think of Hudson Haskin on, on this list too. And something mentioned in Hudson Haskin write-up was that, you know, there's just so much variety in opinions on Hudson Haskin and that swing in his overall game. So it's it also goes back to what I mentioned in the Patreon exclusive we did after our Top 50 show. Like, it's almost better just put these lists in, you know, tiers and buckets because I feel like Tremble is still with Haskin. He's part of this bucket of outfielders where he could become a major league regular in center field, or he could become a fourth, fifth outfielder at the major league level, right? There's so there's this wide variance, but at the end of the day, they're toolsy. There's a decently high ceiling and they're intriguing prospects. Um, so it's just a matter of getting him on the field regularly, but my perception hasn't really changed right now. I'm still wait in wait and see mode with with Reed Trimble. Yeah, 100. I agree. I had dropped him to like 33 on my list, but not because anything changed. Just because he he's injured and he's going to be out a while. I think we can almost look at him as like uh, an older high school draftee more so than you know some polished college hitter. I mean, this is a freak athlete, incredibly fast, surprising power for his size, like. Yeah, the, the ceiling is is pretty high, but the floor is also pretty low as compared to the other college guys like Dante Williams, who's kind of probably in the same bucket, you know, just in a, a different like style of player. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely an interesting read and uh, read, get it? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping he gets healthy quick and comes back, you know, on earlier timeline just so we can get at least some time this year and and get his feet wet and we can get a better read on him. God, read it again. Well, we and we're going to talk about Zach Watson a little bit, but we see a lot of outfield prospects right now who are in that bucket. Reed Trimble, Zach Watson, Dante Williams, Hudson Haskin. John Rhodes is even another one that you could throw in there, even though Rhodes projects more as a corner guy, where there's such a wide range of outcomes. And I suspect it may be part of that, and I brought this up right after the draft last year, I just question with the college guys in particular, how much of that has to do with the fact that the 2020 season was shortened by the pandemic. The 2021 season still wasn't entirely normal in some cases. So are we just maybe not getting a full feel for these players? Because, you know, all, you know, every outfitter we just mentioned was somehow affected by this. Except for, well, even Watson was because he lost the 2020 season in the minor league. Yeah, I just think you know, with Tremble and those guys, you know, you just it's it's all in the data. You know, it's the stuff we don't have access to. I think that's what these teams really that's all they have to go off of. And so and we don't have much to go off of. We have you know, 10, 20 games at Delmarva and after they just played a full college season. So that's not really going to tell us much of anything. Uh, so a lot of these guys just wait and see. You know, Tremble is different because we're not going to see him next year. But we're going to get a full year of Dante Williams. We're going to get a full year of Zach Watson in triple a, hopefully uh, to see what he can really do. Um, you know, the, last year was weird. The player development, I think in, in general, is just going to be weird for another couple of years. And so it's just going to be, see which teams are, are better at this than others. And I like the the foundation and the basis the Orioles have uh, to help with these guys. Um, so you know, let's wait and see what happens in 2022. Yeah, and speaking of Zach Watson, talk about a write-up. We all mentioned it uh, before the show started, but just such a spot on write-up. I mean, a little bit brutal, as Nick said, about his um, swing and miss and you know inability to walk and plate discipline, but 
calling him out is just a great defender at all outfield positions could potentially be a 30 30 guy just as far as the power and the speed goes so i mean he's got a high floor and if he can ever learn to even walk like i don't know six percent of the time seven percent of the time then then you really have something on your hands but yeah that's why i don't have him in my top 30 is because of exactly what they said but still the power and the speed are there to be a valuable player even if it's just on a bench i've said it a lot hit for higher average get on base more the power is there the defense is there all the raw tools are there to be an explosive prospect and last year was his first full season so you know there are probably some tweaks in the game that the Orioles were working with and he started using that approach and the power came with it and some other things maybe slipped and so now this offseason what has he done to prepare what has he done to get better what is what was the plan, his individual development plan from the Orioles? And what's he going to look like next year against more advanced pitching? I'm anxious to see, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's got to get on base. You can't have a 270 on base percentage in the major league. It's not going to cut it. You can hit 30 home runs, but I need you to get on base more. Uh, that's just, yes. that's just it. Is that why he's hunting so much this offseason, learning patience by just sitting <laughs> in that tree stand waiting for the perfect shot? <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, I think that, you know, Watson. I always sort of go back to what actually makes a fourth outfielder in this day and age. And the one example I always go back to is Jake Marisnik, who, you know, when you look at some of the pre, you know, when you look at some of the prospect reports when Marisnik was coming up originally with Toronto, they were pretty high. I think he was a top 100 guy a few times. He's ended up as a fourth outfielder on contending teams who kind of is in the bucket of surprising power, a lot of speed, good defender, strikes out a ton doesn't hit for a high average. And I think Watson's got the potential to be a little bit more than that. But if you also sort of see that as a baseline for, you know, a backup outfielder in the major leagues, that's a pretty good one because Jake Marisnik has played on some good teams and has stuck around for a while. Yeah. You need role players just as well as you need superstars and just solid everyday guys that can hit in the middle of your lineup. So you know, everyone plays a role, and Zach Watson, I think, will definitely at least get a shot to play a role as soon as this year. Let's talk about some players that weren't uh, mentioned anywhere on this report. So not only were they not in the top 45, but they weren't in some of the sections that came beneath it. That was Adam Hall, Ryland Bannon, and Robert Newstrom. Um, Hall and Bannon, as we know, struggled in 2021, while Newstrom broke out what has been the best professional season of his career. And it's probably on the cusp of the major leagues right now, even if he starts the season back in Norfolk. So I'll start with Bob on this. Was it surprising to you that all three of these players were admitted or were you maybe more surprised by one than the other? A little bit surprised by Newstrom. I just think he's right there. If, like we've talked about, is the floor and being able to just be a player on a major league roster, is that give someone a boost like Caden Grenier? I feel like Robert Newsom's right there. He's definitely going to get a shot at some point this year. And he's got some tools. He's got some power. He's decently patient at the plate. So that was a little bit surprising, but, you know, not the end of the world. Guys like Yusniel Diaz, Adam Hall, Ryland Bannon, even Cameron Bishop not being on there. That one's a little bit surprising just because we've seen what he can be at his best and it's pretty darn good. But uh, 
Yeah, not so surprising on Hall, Bannon, or Diaz. We've talked about it a lot. These are guys that just took a huge hit, you know, last year as far as their development goes. And what do you know? All three of them were Duquette guys, not Elias guys. So I don't know if that has anything to do with anything. But, you know, there was not that many guys who development went the opposite direction. And and those three, unfortunately, were were some of them. I'm fine with Hall not being on there. I wanted to leave him off my top 50. I think it's just that speed and the fact that he is still so young and the amateur side of his career before entering pro ball, not really challenged as much as a lot of other guys. So I'm fine with giving him another year before I fully write him off, but I I can see why. I think there was a comment that Kevin Goldstein said in the comments that, you know, there was a lot of discussion about Adam Hall with a lot of different sources and they felt confident in leaving him off. So I think that says a lot there. Uh, Bannon's a little bit of a tough one. Like, you know, I just, I wonder if, you know, was there maybe just a little bit of intrigue with him? So they said, Hey, let's put him on the 40 man because he's going to get snatched up in the rule five draft. This 40 man roster we know is a disaster anyway. So he's not wasting a spot, but you know, now that 40, those 40 man spots are becoming a little bit more valuable and so I wonder if he's a potential DFA candidate in the near future. We kind of talked about him a little bit last week, but Nushin is definitely the tough one and surprising one because he's always gotten a mention on this list, and now he's gone even after he tapped into all that raw power. Uh, he had pretty moderate success in AAA, and I think looking at some of the other names on the back end of this list, like I think he's a better prospect than Tyler Nevin, apparently a future KBO star Tyler Nevin, according to his write-up here. Um, but it's it's tough to see Nushram not on there because he's also become a fan favorite, I think, among a lot of fans who follow the system pretty closely. And a guy that the Orioles, based on recent camp showings and stuff, the Orioles seem to be pretty high on Nushram as well. So that's a little surprising. That was a very specific outcome for Tyler Nevin. I don't know that I have seen that in a prospect <laughs> report before from a major Allen. I've read a lot of uh, these reports, and I don't know that I have seen that before. Yeah. But – He's not wrong. I can clearly see him being like the next, you know, Chris Givens or whoever, um, you know, these guys that are mediocre at best at the major leagues go over to uh, KBO or or something like that and hit like 30, 40 home runs. I could definitely see it, him fitting that profile. He could be the Phil Nevin (laughs) of the KBO. I was thinking that Roberto Ramos, I remember during the, the pandemic and we were all watching KBO, Roberto Ramos was like destroying pitches for, I think he played for the LG Twins. And you know that was a guy who was on a lot of top 30 lists, I think for the Rockies after he was drafted. Dominated KBO for the last two years and now I think the Red Sox just signed him. That could be the, the path for Tyler Nevin. I do like this comment from Yoni over here. Adam Hall being the seventh best infielder on his team this year is fine with me. Yeah, I agree. I did. I I read that and thought, oh, the organizational. Yeah, that makes sense. But his team—that's that's that's a comment. Fact. Talk for a minute about um, someone who just missed the top forty-five and was mentioned in catching depth, and that was Samuel Basayo, who, if you listen to this show, you know we're very high on. We had him in the teens in our most recent prospect uh, report, and I'll just read from what Fangraphs has here. They point out that Basayo was the youngest uh, prospect on the Orioles DSL team and that he was a good power hitter there. Uh, Direct quote here from the report. He has a low ball swing with above average bat speed, but is physically maxed out already at 17. 
I don't think I disagree with the idea that he's physically maxed out because he is so big already. Um, he's listed right now at 6'3", 180 on fan graphs, which I definitely don't think is right. Uh, but that's a subject for another show. Um, but I still kind of feel like at the same time, especially when you consider some of the other players that are on this list, that Pasayo belonged somewhere in there, somewhere in the top 45. But I guess their projections for him are a lot different in part because of the concerns of his size. Yeah, I mean, he might be phys- physically maxed out, but so is Jason Dominguez. I, I kind of think this is one where they just got it a little bit wrong. I, I think they're missing out here. Clearly, Kobe present Orioles are super excited about Samuel Basayo. They're talking about how young he's going to be stateside in the FCL next year. And you look at this swing. Still, obviously, we need more video to get a clearer picture. We've talked about that a lot. But I just feel like to not have him on this list is kind of a crime. Maybe the biggest crime they committed. But, you know, these guys are covering all 30 teams, so they're going to miss some. Yeah, we. to be fair, like we only get his home run clips that he posts on Instagram. So, yeah, there's That's a lot of his game. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of his game that we haven't seen yet. Um, but, you know, the fact that – I think when Kobe Perez was on, he said that production he had in the DSL – you know, he's a junior in high school. Like that's his age doing that against other guys who are a year, two years older than him, uh, who have been in the league for a year already. So, or at least have been in organizations, you know, weight training programs and, and everything. So it's a grown man in a 17 year old kid's body. Uh, I get that. And maybe he doesn't stick behind the plate. I think that he might also get dinged for that. So I get that as well. And, you know, if you project as a future first base DH type, You've got to hit, you know, 45 home runs and hit for 330, 340 average before they're really going to move you up the list. Look at J.D. Mundy, T.T. Bowens, Andrew Doshbach were all lumped together there after the top 45 list. Um, I feel like maybe that's where they kind of see Basayo's future. But the ceiling, I mean, you talk about ceiling and future value. Like, I think the ceiling is much, much higher than just being on the back end of this top 45 list. When you have some of the guys on, on like 29 year old minor league relievers on your top 45 list, I think the definitely could, could be a bit higher, but yeah, I agree. And, and I look at the group of players that they have in here mentioned in catching depth, and I don't think they're implying that these guys are equals prospects, but that they're, you know, part of the depth of this organization. It's Basayo, Creed Williams, Connor Pavoloni, and Maverick Hanley. Um, I can tell you things that I like about all four of those players, but to me, Basayo just – there's a clear distinction between Basayo and the other three. Um, and, you know, I, I think that when he plays in the Florida Complex League next year, you are going to start to see a little more certainty to, to these reports. So this could be one that a year from now is a lot different. Um, but I think part of it's going to have to be that he'll have to settle – some questions about what his defense is going to look like. And I'll be honest with you that I have no clue what that's going to look like because I can tell you with as much certainty that I think he's going to move to first base as I can tell you that he's going to be a big catcher who stays behind the plate for eight years and then hits 40 home runs a year for the next 10 years as D8s. <laughs> I was just going to say, look at this son. Like, he was so young in the FCL last year hit so well and now he is where is he on this list is he just outside the top 20 21 22 or something on this list so he's pretty high up there yeah 
Yeah, that could happen for Basayo too. He's a big guy with not a lot of physical projection, so it's hard to like dream on what he can become physically, which I get kind of stunts where you're going to put him on this list. I, I understand maybe why Fangraph specifically is on this list, but I think Orioles fans who are, are reading this and listening to this, you you still have every right to be very excited about Basayo's future. Yeah, I was just going to say, look, Braylon Tavera is not on this list either, and Orioles just gave him $1.7 million, so clearly – you know, when these guys are this young and there's just not that much information about them, you know, they're, they might not, you know, have the confidence to put them in a particular spot. So, yeah. And especially if he is physically maxed out, wouldn't that mean that if he's playing catcher now, that maybe that gives more reason to think he could stick a catcher? I don't know. But first base as a likely destination does make the most sense as far as why they might have kept him down there a little bit. Maybe they should have put him in that other group. Speaking of these young international guys and not having the confidence to put guys on list, I get that. That was an impossible task for me. I know putting together our list. Where do you put Braylon Tavera? Where do you put Edwin Amparo? Where do you you put these guys? Even Michael Hernandez and Sammy Basayo, it's where exactly do they fit best. But Leandro Arias at 12, I think that's that's – that exudes confidence in your evaluation of this guy at such a young age. That one, like, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to say it's wrong at all. I love it. I like it a lot. Um, it's definitely an interesting talking point, though, I think. I Well, when I saw it today, I thought back to our interview with Eric last year where he talked a lot about shortstop defense, and I know that is something that Fangraphs values. And, you know, with Arias, I don't know that I've seen a lot of players this young where every report you read on him, says he can stick at shortstop. You just don't see that very often. So they must feel like he's really going to come into his own with the power. It's going to be years before we know if that's the case because he's just going to be in the DSL this summer. It's going to be 2024 most likely when he makes his full season debut. Um, and at that point, he could still be four or five years away from the big leagues. But, you know, it's exciting to think about what his projection could be as a switch hitter who's a good defensive shortstop now, could stick at the position, has a good plate approach, and they seem to think could eventually fill out and hit for more power without moving off the position. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's such a strong take that it's enough to make me move him up even just the next time we do like update our, our list just because it's so confident to put him all the way up at 12 at that age, put a 60-hit tool on him with, you know, potential power and to stick at shortstop saying this could be like one of the big breakouts of the international class. I mean, pretty big words. So love to see it. And even Prieto at 14, that's pretty, pretty confident and strong too. So, you know, he, what he said, he could be like a, just a 70 hit tool, just could hit, hit, hit and be an everyday regular, or it could just be like a, a role player that can move around, be more for his bat than his glove and, and provide some value there. So Makes me think even better of this international class that just just, just happened a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I like shout out to Vivek again, that comment. He said Fangraphs must have seen or heard something on him. I'm assuming that's it's Arias there. And yeah, I think someone got a, a really glowing report from a trusted source. And uh, that's that's not leaving their head when they were doing this write-up. And if, if you're going to have that hard line of a take on a guy this young, this early, yeah, my interest is definitely peaked beyond belief right now. Looking at uh, further down the list, 
In the 30s, you're going to see a lot of reliever-type pitchers lumped together in the same bucket. And it happens to be that they're all sort of ranked in consecutive order. So just to give an example, you would have Felix Batista at 34, Brian Baker uh, behind him, then Logan Gillespie, then Carlos Tavera, and then it gets to Morgan McSweeney, which I don't know about you, Bob or Nick, but that was not a pitcher who I had on my radar when I was putting together my top 50. Fangrass has him at 38, and I'm just going to read an excerpt from the report here. He enjoyed a velo spike in 2021 and went from maxing out around 95 and 19 to sitting 95 last season. He also has a plus slider with big vertical depth and near elite spin rates. You think about what the profile you look for in a reliever, which is two good pitches. That gets you really, really excited. So Morgan McSweeney, is this now the sleeper of the year going into 2022? Sure. Let's go with it. I mean, (laughs) I think it's just like the back end of this list is a lot of relief prospects. Uh, and Cole Uvila here, 28 year old uh, reliever who's at number 43. But um, yeah, I think it's just we talked about this uh, making our list. I think all three of us view the back end of our list a little differently. Do you put guys who have the higher ceiling, a little bit safer prospects on the back end of your list? Do you put the higher uh, ceiling international prospects at the back end of your list? And I think as relievers, a lot of these guys are safe relief prospects. So putting them on the back of your list, I think is completely fine. Like, I like watching McSweeney. I might have been the only Orioles fan who like actively watched Morgan McSweeney pitch last year. Uh, and like he's fine. Uh, but I think maybe I remember someone reached out with a comment that said, hey, like, what about the relief prospects in the system? Like, is there anyone that stands out? Can we talk about that on an episode? And I think maybe with eight relief prospects in this Fangrass top 45, should we do a relief pitcher <laughs> um, episode at some point? But uh, yeah, intriguing arm for sure. And he comes out of Wake Forest. I'm any guy out of Wake Forest. I'm intrigued by. Let's see how long this lockout drags on <laughs> and maybe we should do that. Uh, yeah. I actually was sitting behind the Statcast people when I went to one of the Aberdeen games last year and happened to be Morgan McSweeney made an appearance. So he definitely hits that mid nineties, uh, good slider with good RPMs. So, I mean, definitely was a surprise to see him on this list, but I mean, definitely could see him being a guy that could carve out, a role as like an up and down relief guy, you know, goes up and down triple A while he's got his options in a few years. So I guess it's not the craziest thing in the world, but uh, yeah. I mean, I'll say didn't have too many innings in Bowie, but looking at his numbers now, he struck out 35% of hitters and the walk rate was pretty high in high A and that dropped around 8% in double A. So he did much better there. And I think there was a, an interview it might have been his interview on Lachlan Orioles, uh, but he, he said right after the draft, when he came into the system, a common story among a lot of these pitchers, they weren't big analytical guys. They didn't really look at the data. It's like Lamar Sparks said, I just went out and played baseball. And then they look at what the Orioles are teaching. And they look at some of that data and the video that they have on him. And he was one that really bought in pretty quickly into this system. And so you see now he is a top 45 prospect in the Orioles system, according to one outlet. We'll go to a couple of listener questions now. And we got some good ones here from Chris. Thoughts on the doubts about Mayo, Kobe Mayo at third base. A shift to right field seems like a strange idea of his limited mobility forcing a move. And 
To give some background, Fangrass had a very glowing report on Kobe Mayo, but mentioned that with his size and his projection, he seems likely to move to a corner outfield spot, and they project him at right field. So I'll let Nick start with this question. I mean, we've been on the train as well. Like Kobe Mayo is the third baseman until otherwise like stated, you know, until they rip him out of that position, he's going to be a third base prospect. We all watched him play third base and love what he did there. Um, I think Ben Bather even said like, yeah, he played a good third base, but you know, it was that knee injury. So maybe that uh, held him back a little bit last year. So how fluid is he going to be at that position when he's fully healthy next year? He could be pretty well. Um, Yeah. He's a big guy, but you see a lot of other guys listen to a podcast earlier, a pirates podcast talking about O'Neill Cruz guys six seven six eight they're keeping him at shortstop like why can't kobe bayo p- play third base with that arm that strength he has like, i i just like, i get it i think kevin goldstein had a comment in on this article that said like his projection his size screams corner outfielder i get it. i'm not going to argue against that but until he proves otherwise like kobe mayo is a, a third baseman in the major leagues i think i know one guy down in Florida who is pissed <laughs> about this. No. And I can't say that I totally blame him. I mean, like you said, he's shown that he can play the position so far. I mean, let's just – and also, like you said, he's going to stay there. They're going to keep him here until, you know, they have no choice but to take him off there. So maybe, yeah, maybe in four years, five years, you know, when you got Gunner and Jordan and Joey and – I don't know why I'm using first names, but you run out of room on the infield and Mayo's got that arm, that cannon. So maybe you do stick him out in left or right field. And just to get all these bats in the lineup, I mean, this is obviously, you know, everything's going to turn up uh, sevens. Wait, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Anyway, if everything ends up going really, really well and all these guys develop to their potential, maybe he does eventually move to the outfield, but no reason to think that's going to be anytime soon. So another question here from Chris along these same lines. They project Jordan Westbrook at second base, even though he hasn't played there as far as I know. Do you expect him or even Henderson to start getting reps there? Um, I'll jump in real quick with Westbrook that I believe the last time he played second base was in summer collegiate ball a few years ago. He has not played second base professionally. So that would have to be something the Orioles would have to work in if they consider that an option. But I'll go ahead and let Bob start with this question. Yeah, you know, first of all, Gunnar Henderson, no way do I think he's going to move to second base. I think they even wrote that he could be an elite third baseman and that he has a chance to stick at shortstop. So maybe Keith Law wasn't as crazy as as we thought when uh, he wrote that uh, Gunnar Henderson defensive uh, write-up. With As far as Westberg goes, I feel like, when they put him at second base, I think they're just projecting ahead. Clearly, right now, there's no one in his way at shortstop or third base at the major league level or the AAA level. So he'll get every opportunity to stick at shortstop. And then, you know, he can always slide to third base. But I think maybe just because we have the Gunnar Hendersons, Kobe Mayos, Joey Ortiz, et cetera, they just see him ending up at second base. And, yeah, we do have a bunch of second base prospects as well. But, you know, he's got to play somewhere. The bat's going to get him there. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how the upper levels of the minor leagues, all that shakes out, which we had those questions go back to Delmarva last year. How are they going to get these guys playing time? They did. Unfortunately, injuries played a bigger role in that, but they still found ways. And I think with Westberg, you know, projecting him as a second baseman, it's also it's also a safe projection because you look at his offensive numbers. I've said a couple of times, I keep 
envisioning Jonathan Scope offensive production from Jordan Westberg as a second baseman. Uh, and then you look at guys like Taron Vavra, Cesar Preto, Connor Norby. I like Westberg's bat better. I like his overall game better. Uh, and so if you know he plays shortstop so well, if you know he plays third base so well, if you do need to move him off the position because maybe the offensive numbers don't scream third base or shortstop profile, I think he fits very perfectly as a second base prospect, uh, a future second baseman in the major league. So uh, that's not a knock on him at all, I don't think. But I don't think you see him play second base anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's a knock, but I also don't expect him to move to second base. Honestly, at this rate, I expect that unless Joey Ortiz or Gunnar Henderson beat him to the major leagues or at shortstop when they get there, that Westberg will probably debut in the majors as a shortstop, and they'll sort that out later. Um, a question from Yoni here, which is, I think Colin Burns is going to be a huge riser this year. What do you guys think? Colin Burns was on our top 50, so I think we're, we're all to a certain level – high on him, but I'll let Nick uh, start with this question. I mean, nothing super stands out with Colin Burns. There's nothing extremely sexy there, but he's just across the board. He does everything fine. I mean, it's good defense. It's good line drive. There's not a lot of power there. Uh, Just a good overall utility option that does everything pretty well. And so I I like those guys. I think they're interesting. Um, They're safe guys you can bet on. And I'm interested to see how high he goes, but Definitely this year, next year in A ball, double A, he's going to be a fun guy to watch that I think no one, no one except us continues to talk about, which I'm fine with. Yeah, I don't know about huge riser, but I do think a lot of these 2021 draft picks that we just didn't get a ton of data, a ton of playing time on, whether it be Ryan Higgins, uh, Jacob Teeter, Colin Burns, any of the pitchers, I mean, we have no way to differentiate them. I do think you're going to see them rise up into that at least 30 to 50 range, especially with I want to go back and look at how many guys they have debuting this year. So you could have Adley, Grayson, D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradish, Kyle Stowers, Taron Vavra, Alexander Wells, Michael Bauman, all coming off of this list, and Jemai Jones, and also guys like you, Sneil Diaz, and Adam Hall just disappearing entirely, dropping off. So, yeah, I definitely think you're going to see guys like Colin Burns and and the rest really – really cement their place uh, in the mid to bottom half of our list next year, this year. So before we wrap up this discussion on the fan graphs list, uh, Bob, Nick, any final thoughts? Just exciting day. Whenever this list drops, it's just an exciting day. And I look forward to being able to eventually talk to Eric in, in a couple months and just pick his brain, see if anything's changed and uh, get some more information. Love it. Yeah, overall, I mean, great list. It's fun just to you know, pick these apart, everybody's list, our list included. It's fun to pick it apart, talk about where we were different, what we like, what we don't like. Uh, you know, everybody has different views, and that's fine. It's what makes all this fun. Uh, I didn't get to mention a, one note, two notes, I think, that I had jotted down here. Keegan Gillis, the built like a construction crane comment, I thought was hilarious. And that's all I'm going to remember now about Keegan Gillis, even though I, guys would throw like 100 miles an hour next year in Delmarva he's gonna blow everybody away uh and Michael Hernandez that was a name that I think a lot of people had some comments about and they mentioned like statistically where's the quote specifically I can read this up while his pro debut failed to impress in terms of performance scouting the stat line in the DSL is a dangerous undertaking and Hernandez's numbers and underlying data improved throughout the season he provides a rare combination of size and athleticism that fits the casting call for a modern star level shortstop so 
don't sleep on Hernandez because he had a bad year in the DSL last year. Yeah, I, I actually want to um, point out a something that I read that I kind of was interesting to me. Adam Stauffer, it's like he continues to have success and nobody, not the analytics, not the seeing eye scouts, nobody has any idea how he's doing it. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Let's see if that uh, that keeps up. And I would, the last thing I would say is just don't worry about the order that they're in, read the write-ups. They're pretty well done. They're well-researched and they have good information. So take from it what you can and don't make too much of just a number next to a name. Yeah. And I'll wrap up with this, which is this um, quote here that comes from their system overview towards the bottom, which is 2022 represents uh, the year when the first returns from all that recent works, it starts to manifest on the field in Baltimore. Nobody's saying the Orioles are going to win the division this year. Nobody's saying they'll compete for a playoff spot or even have a winning record. But what we should expect is a team that finally has some exciting young players on the major league roster, players who can provide optimism for the future of the franchise, and that's something more than just trade chips. Yeah. Ryan Mountcastle, he's here. Um, try to. I'm going to look a little bit here. Is Austin Hayes one of those guys? Cedric Mullins. And then you're going to see Kyle Bradish. You're going to see Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, maybe DL Hall. We'll see. Kyle Stowers. You're seeing a lot of top 10, top 15 prospects, future stars of this organization, hopefully, making their debut in 2022. Um, I, I think, I, I hope, I pray, I pray for Orioles fans everywhere that this franchise takes a step forward this year because if not, I'm afraid to see what happens. But I think that's a fantastic quote to kind of end that right up on. 100%. It's super exciting. And it just gets me get to, all right. I know we've talked about, yeah, CBA can drag on. We're going to have minor league baseball. No, get that shit signed. Oh, uh, <laughs> and let's play some freak of baseball because it's going to be an exciting year. You know, whether we win 65 or 75 games anywhere in between, it's going to be exciting. Just these guys are going to arrive this year and we're going to start to see, the makings of the future of this club. So be sure to head over to fangraphs.com to check out the full list. Kevin Goldstein will be joining Chris Stoner, the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life, and a podcast on Baltimore Sports and Life Radio in the coming days. So be sure to check that out and check out all of the content on Baltimore Sports and Life, including Orioles, some Super Bowl coverage, basketball, sports business, and more. Join the message board there and hop in and discuss them with fellow readers as well as contributors to the site. We will be back next Wednesday night with Dr. Stephen Loftus and what is going to be a preview of the high school and college baseball season. We already have people asking us when we're going to talk about the draft more, and the answer is we're going to start talking about it next week. When we have Stephen on, and we'll also get in to the possibility of a draft lottery in Major League Baseball. So those will be topics for that show. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. Um, to see their latest coverage over there. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds.